Welcome to another episode of the New Vision Podcast. Today, I'm very grateful to be speaking with Alyssa Amor-Gibbons. She's an architectural designer with over eight years' experience in designing a wide variety of projects throughout the Caribbean as well as the UK. And she's a big believer in designing buildings that are both environmentally conscious, energy efficient, as well as beautiful. Let's get into it. I am joined for this week's episode by Alyssa Amore Gibbons. She's an architectural designer with over eight years experience in a wide variety of projects throughout the Caribbean as well as the UK. She's a lead accredited professional in general building design and construction for residential homes and a lead green rater with an honors degree in mechanical engineering, I believe that is, or is that a master's in engineering and structural engineering and architecture? Yep, that's a master's in structural engineering and architecture. Okay, I got confused by the by the eng part. But um, you, you specialized in, in building information modeling, which uh, for a person like me, uh, doesn't mean much, but I assume that has to do with the modeling of architecture on a, a computer or something like that. Yep, that's it. Okay, well, it's just a fancy word that means something understandable then. Uh, but <laughs> she's been, been really fostering her passion for designing and delivering architecture that tells a story of consideration, environmental consciousness, which which is something I've, I've come across from looking at her profile on, on LinkedIn. Uh, that was actually how, how I got in touch with her. And um, also a big focus on energy efficiency, which we have to really focus on increasingly and resilience as well and when she's not in the studio she is somewhere in nature i think she was saying talking about swimming off here and um i really have really happy to have you on the show Alyssa Amore. How, how have you been doing first of all thank you josiah thank you very much for having me on i've been doing okay all things considered we are smack dab it still feels like in the middle of a pandemic still battling ash so just grateful to be able to chat with you this evening. Well, these are the best times. As Confucius said, may you live in interesting times. So uh, <laughs> they, they certainly are interest, interesting times uh, for people yes. that have been without work or uh, fully un- unemployed or reduced always and so on. Yes. I'm sure this is not interesting in, in a nice way, that's for sure. But I'm um, really happy to have you on the show. I, I, w- I, I would say um, maybe... 10 years ago, I don't know, 12 years ago, you remember it when, when there was the peak of oil prices. And I think it was 100 and up to 170 US per barrel. Um, maybe this was when the, the change came. Uh, maybe you could tell me if that's not so, but maybe that was when the change came in terms of uh, increased focus on energy efficiency and so on, you know, in America that, or in other places that was starting in the mid early 2000s. But um, how, how, do, how do you see it in, in terms of, the increasing importance of energy efficiency. Obviously, the government has opened up um, competition aside from light and power in terms of deliverables of renewable energy and so on. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? So I think we kind of started to get into it a bit um, off air, but apart from it being a bit of a hot button topic at the moment, you know, we, we live on an earth that has finite resources. We live in a country <laughs> that has finite resources. I mean, we we already know Barbados is a water-scarce nation. So as a population, we're already directly impacted by the kind of finite amount of air, water that we have on Earth. So this entire move towards a sustainable economy, sustainable living on earth is is really, like I said before, when we were chatting, a no-brainer. We can't continue in the way that we have throughout the Industrial Revolution into the next even decade. So I think we are at a point globally where everyone has started to realize that we need to pump the brakes, but not just pump the brakes, but also apply less gas while we figuring out how to mm. pump the brakes, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, yeah. It's, it's, it's critical times. Um, and I'm grateful that we are now at a point in Barbados where we're starting to implement policies that 
start to address directly the issues that we are facing and will continue to face. And I will say that the built environment is a very heavy contributor to carbon emissions worldwide. Whatever country you're looking at, you're looking at in excess of 30%, in some cases like North America, 40% contribution to um, greenhouse gas emissions globally. So it is an industry that contributes daily. And as a designer, I take it very, very seriously within my job that I need to be at the forefront of kind of streamlining, changing, tweaking the way I actually design to make sure that I'm doing less harm to the environment. And if you spend a lot of time around me, you would hear me say a million times, is not enough for buildings to look good. Buildings need to perform. They absolutely need to perform. So many of the designs I've seen that you've done look quite fashion forward, but yet they have a energy efficient and environmentally conscious focus as well. Yes, 100%. We spend about 90% of our time in buildings as human beings. Whether you're at home sleeping, you're in an indoor environment. If you're at work, you're in an indoor environment. If you're going to spend 90% of your time in a building, there needs to be thought given to what that interior environment is like. So we're not just only talking about energy efficiency and sustainable architecture, but you're talking about the environment, the air quality within the spaces that you create and the impact that that has on human beings. And do you think that that will call for a revision of the building codes in Barbados? I do think so. And I think if if you even just take a casual glance at the energy policies moving forward, there is a lot of recognition towards just that. We're talking about changing while well, overhauling the way we design to meet, you know, international standards of sustainability, mm-hmm. wellness, energy efficiency, and general building performance. You know? So I know looking through the the energy policy and being kind of in the thick of things when it comes to how our national building policies are being changed and and hopefully implemented in the very near future, that there are a number of things that the government is starting to, you know, take on board as to how we now shift to even stand a chance of reaching the performance targets that we have, you know, committed to. So when you're thinking about a sustainable 2030 or Agenda 2030, where we're looking to be carbon neutral by then, it means that in order to make that happen, there needs to be some kind of legislation or standardization of buildings to be able to set the standards and targets for people within the industry to meet. You can't. I, I just want to. I just mm-hmm. want to address when, when you say carbon neutral. There, for, for, for mm-hmm. a lay person, what, what does that mean exactly? So that's a really good question. And there's kind of a spectrum here. So you can be energy efficient, which means you're using less. Mm -hmm. And how do you gauge that? It could be percentage wise. Um, There are different metrics. There's a different metric that you can use to measure um, different energy performances. For carbon neutrality, it's kind of take the word neutral, right? You don't want to be doing any additional harm to the environment. You want to be achieving net zero carbon de- um, carbon emissions, right? So when you're thinking of neutrality, is is that sweet spot where you're not you're not consuming more mm-hmm. than you need to? So would net zero mean that we, we have to be in essence, because um, we are releasing uh, CO2 with everything we do. So will we have to be sucking up CO2 out of the atmosphere as well to compensate for that? Uh, what exactly does, does that mean? Well, when it comes to buildings, the, the primary way that we look at it is really in the energy performance. There, there are, not, there are maybe, I say, two main ways that you can look at it. But yeah. when we look at building emissions, we typically measure them from your day-to-day energy use. So your operational carbon emissions, right? So that's going to be coming from, you know, lighting, Heating, mm-hmm. which we don't really have in the Caribbean because we're tropical, but then you're talking about cooling. So if you're running your ACs, um, what type of ceiling fans you might have installed, what type of washing machines, what kind of power consumption your building has, right? 
Mm-hmm. The second way we kind of think of it is more of the embodied carbon of the building. So that's more to do with the types of materials that you're using in your building, whether they're off-gassing, so um, the type of paints you're using, if they're releasing any um, harmful chemicals. You're also talking about how far do these materials come from? What is the embodied cost of the carbon within them? So if you're bringing materials from, you know, a forest in the middle of Brazil, for example, you're you're taking a potentially carbon sequestering um, entity out of the environment, mm-hmm. right? So that's how we gauge it: your operational carbon emissions, but also your embodied carbon. And and is it in essence really when we speak? really of net zero referring to not going above the present emissions uh, levels, uh, well, uh, emission levels set at whatever year they're set at to be the level at which we, we don't go above because uh, obviously we're, we're still going to be emitting um, CO2. Yes. So, and there's, there's a slight danger in that term net zero. Net zero is a fantastic aim, but a lot of times as designers, you would consider net zero to be that you are, Say, for example, in the case of renewable energy, so you have PVs on your on your roof, right? Mm-hmm. Net zero can be taken to mean that you are producing as much as you're consuming. Mm-hmm. That's, that, what, that's how I was thinking of it. Right, which is which is fine, right? It's accurate. But Josiah, if you are if you are pumping out um if you're pumping out like combustion gases, if you are leaving your lights on through all hours on the night, if you are overly consuming, the fact that you are able to produce that much just because you have X amount of cells on your roof does not mean that you're being energy efficient, you know, Hmm. right? So the first step for me, at least, when I speak about sustainable architecture is always energy efficiency. You don't hear people saying recycle, um, and then reuse and reduce. You then start with the reduce, right? You need mm-hmm. to reduce your consumption first and be efficient about that and then look towards other strategies to help mitigate any additional emissions. So right? so with um, some things, so, I mean, this might be slightly different to buildings, obviously, but I saw your posts um, earlier about the circular economy and somewhere yeah. like IKEA. Yes. Um, doing a thing where we're where with old stuff, like say, mm-hmm. I'm trying to get a new bed, I can bring back the frame yeah. and, and they give me a discount and then that, that's mm-hmm. applied to a new purchase. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that something that would help with that in terms of the reducing the purchase of brand new things and so on? It does. It does because... The, and and when I, when we talk about sustainability in buildings, one of the most overlooked areas is materiality. And within the materiality, yeah, you might have like your concrete, your your um masonry units, but there's also the FFNE, the carpets, the furniture that goes into the building, right? Mm-hmm. That's a big opportunity to be a lot more sustainable. So a lot of the um a lot of the accreditations that you you saw there. And the global bodies and third-party verification and certification entities—they structure their programs in such a way that they incentivize you in order to meet these targets to achieve the accreditation. You need to do certain things. Mm-hmm. So something like the IKEA circular economy post that I did—if you reuse fifty percent, ninety percent of the—if you I'm trying to make sure I get this right. So it's very clear and understandable. Mm-hmm. Say you want to, to place your furniture in your, in your new home, right? If you utilize a company that has committed to use recycling old furniture, for example, and using that as a raw material to make new furniture, that is, that gives you extra credit. That gives you extra points because right off the bat, you're taking something that would have been otherwise disposed of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And reusing that to make new material, right? So maybe like a decade ago, um, architects would have talked a lot about cradle to grave, right? Where you do a full life cycle analysis of the materials that you're using. So you know, okay, there's been maybe this um, amount of tonnage of carbon emission and, and water use that goes into making this product. Then there's this amount of carbon emitted by flying it from here to here. 
and this amount of carbon and, and energy and water that goes into running the factory to make this, this aspect of the product. All of those things constitute that life cycle assessment, right? Mm-hmm. So then you get almost uh, the equivalent of like a dollar value amount, but in, the, in the carbon. Exactly. So you get a sense of what is the contribution of choosing this particular piece of furniture or this particular type of carpet Mm -hmm. exactly for my building right so when you get a company that commits now to reusing their items that now becomes cradle to cradle is no longer cradle to grave so the product is still usable at the end of its life cycle right so there's a huge opportunity there for different companies to then start to, you know, tighten up on the the amount of energy and carbon footprint that Make that goes into the loop. exactly and mm-hmm. fantastic closed loop system, right? You're minimizing the waste. Well, it seems like a good idea to me. I know my mother would have been very much getting after that one, and she was all about thrift and. Um, efficiency yeah. and, and so on, reusing as much as possible. I guess that's the older generation, so to speak. Um, um, our generation, maybe some of us are maybe a bit different. We buy a new cell phone every six months to a year. But yeah. um, I mean, we, we've gotten into things uh, quite a bit there, but I, I wanted to, to start, actually start off by asking what, what, what would have actually originally inspired you to become an architect? Well... I can't give you a definitive point in time because I've always felt like this is what I was meant to do. You know, I've always been drawn to creativity. I've always been drawn to making things, bringing things from not existing to existing. I I love that concept. And, you know, I used to walk around and look at empty plots of land from the time I can remember myself and think of what it could be. And that's all I ever remembered. I never wanted to be anything else but that. Even when I went into school, I, you know, I was being pushed more towards the, the medic route, you know, doctor and stuff like that. I, I enjoyed science. I enjoyed physics, but you could not rip me apart from art. So I ended up doing I don't know if it's a very random combination, but I, I did physics, math, and art. At yep, that is. Yep, that is. You know, I've heard that combination before. Nobody could, nobody could convince me otherwise because, yes, I was great at, you know, biology, chemistry, these different mm-hmm. subjects, but that kind of fine line between science and art was just where I found my passion, you know? So it just naturally developed from there. So, yes, and I will comp- say, I will say that I have always been drawn to different cultures as well. So I, I used to be such a book nerd when I was growing up and I would read about, you know, the different pyramids and the Petra in Jordan and, you know, seeing how people created these amazing structures out of nothing. I, I was infatuated with that and the fact that they were able to weave, you know, different I don't want to say genres, but it was a bit of philosophy. It was a bit of art. It was a bit of science, physics. There was just this this homogeny of, you know, genius in what I thought was architecture. And I was just always very, very drawn to that. Well, what you've said there does bring up one of my pet peeves, which is um, the strip mall concept and how it's just, uh, you know, just you could it's the identicate thing and you could replicate it anywhere in the world. There's no real I, um, I am feel to a, it. I, I love architecture that is sensitive to the region that it's in, you know? It mm. needs the architecture tells a story. You tell a story with lines and shape and form. Architecture is responsive. And responsive doesn't mean that it has, has to be, you know, um, moving and technical and there's a lot of tectonic movement going on. Responsive just means that there's a problem, a regional or local problem in that plot of land. And you need to take into consideration all the different factors mm-hmm. that this building needs to respond to. Whether that is the fact that there's a building next door that is 10 stories high and is going to overshadow your building. So you need to figure out how to get more natural light into the building so that the occupants feel comfortable and happy to be there. Or if it's the fact that 
you know, on the other side of the plot, there's a, a chemical factory that's shooting out something and, and, and it could be potentially harmful to people. You know, there are so many different things that go into, that should go into, I will say should go into um, the design of a building. And, I, and I'm one of these people that believes architecture needs to be sensitive to the surrounding area because if not, it serves no purpose because it does not create that internal environment for people to actually occupy that building and maintain their wellness throughout occupation. And I, and I would say too that it's, it's good to see different styles throughout the different parts of the world. So having mm -hmm. a, a same thing and just copy and paste it into different places, which uh, strip malls basically are, I, I don't particularly fancy. But um, could could you speak about a bit about your career journey so far? Obviously, you'd have done your masters, but uh, could could you share a bit about your career journey to date? Yeah, I like I said, my background has kind of been infatuated with pulling a bit from every different thing. Um, even my degree, you know, half structural engineering, half architecture, and that's kind of how my career has really developed. Kind of you know, operating in the middle of that Venn diagram with all the crossovers, you know. Um, I ended up working quite quickly out of school and even during school for, you know, building developers, architects, even QSs. I, I like to think I've been thrown in at the deep end. Um, pretty much right out of school, I found myself kind of into projects that were well beyond my experience and you just have to sink or swim and I like to swim so I swam you know I have worked on I find a lot of leisure projects a lot of hospitality projects mm. um it's high on the high-end side yeah quite frankly yes um high-end um multi-million dollar type projects where, you know, if you make a mistake, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the, the pressure has always been there, but throughout that pressure, I've always tried to maintain integrity in the design decisions that I make. Mm -hmm. So particularly in the Caribbean, I find obviously there's, well, I don't know so much now that COVID has happened, but, you know, tourism, hospitality has always been very huge for us. And I think a lot of times our, our stakeholders have had to juggle designs that may not have been designed with, from a local mind, if you get what I'm saying. So a lot of times you will have, you know, farm-based architects making designs that then need to be tweaked to really fit into our, our climate. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Aesthetic and performance. So a lot of my work has been in, yes, in design and concept design, but also in value engineering. So looking at the original design and saying, okay, now what, guys? How do we actually make this work within our climate, within this location? Where are the opportunities to make it function better? Where are the opportunities mm -hmm. to potentially even save money? reduce operation costs and really just trying to optimize the design you know and would you say that in terms of like for residential mm -hmm. um, obviously it's a different budget and so on but but mm -hmm. would you say that there could be anything done in terms of the the architectural design for those because I do find uh, for myself I'm looking at purchasing a piece of the rock as you say uh, but the, the mm -hmm. houses all seem to look the same dull way um, mm -hmm. largely um, that there are some stunning yeah. exceptions but I, I guess that's cost related you'll tell me but but do you think any can can be done on, on that on that front in terms of residential because just because it could look or a fair yeah. bit of them could look more unique doesn't mean they have to cost an arm and a leg more you're getting into my little passion here boy a hundred percent, Josiah. Happy to hear it. A hundred percent. I think a lot of the misconception about architectural design is that if you if it looks nice, it must be expensive, right? We have come such a long way 
when it comes to design, even procurement of items that I always tell my clients, your job is to tell me what you want and you let me worry about the cost and how we're going to make it work, right? Mm. One of the saddest things for me that's is scale, when, that's, that's where the scale of what you do comes into play. No? Yeah, because and I'll, I'll get into the building information modeling and how, how that allows me to be able to be a lot more flexible with costing for clients. What really breaks my heart is when a client comes to me super passionate about something and they might show me pictures of stuff that they like and then they say, but that, that might be too extra. My job, my job is to stress about how to make stuff work. Your job is to share your hopes, your dreams, every little thing you want. And then I will tell you what's achievable. I'll shoot I'll it down like, immediately. <laughs> I, w- I would never, I will never shoot down anything. Uh, no, I mean, it's not their job to shoot it down immediately. No, exactly. You're exactly right. Like your job is to dream. Does it dream and tell me the types of spaces that you want how you want this building to function, what you want it to feel like. You could talk to me in poetry for all I care. I just want to know what you want out of this building. And it's my job, it's my job to make it happen as close as possible to your dreams within your budget. I don't I don't believe in you having to shoot down anything at all, Josiah. Because like I said, we've come such a long way, right? What I specialize in is building information, modeling and management, right? We call it BIM. Like BIM Barbados, we call it BIM, building information management. What that means is that I literally make a 3D virtual twin of your building before you even pay for the first um, walk, right? And in that virtual environment, we can get it wrong. So is that, is that um, like I could use virtual reality, the glasses yeah. to view it? Mm-hmm. Yes, you can. Mm, that's beautiful. Right? So in that virtual space, right? In that virtual space, we can get it wrong. We can't get it wrong when concrete actually start to pour or we actually start to buy stuff. But in that virtual space, we can get it wrong. We can say, okay, I want to make my windows 15% bigger to increase daylight. And then we can see, okay, but that means an increase in solar gain efficiency um, by this much, which means that our utility bills are likely to go up by X amount. I don't want to, I don't want to compromise um, cost or performance for extra daylight. So maybe let's try this strategy, right? Maybe I can increase the overhang of the windows or, or change the shape of them or shift them to a slightly different position or a different orientation on the building so that they're receiving or gaining more sunlight. And in that virtual environment, we can tweak, we can change, we can analyze before we get to the point that things, you know, actually start to cost money to, to buy and to change, right? In that environment as well, we can coordinate different issues So me as a designer, the architectural designer, I have my architectural model, the structural engineer, they'll have their structural design, the MEP designer, they'll have their mechanical electrical plumbing. And in that space, I coordinate the different trades to make sure that no one is trying to put a four inch or six inch pipe through a structural column or beam, Mm -hmm. right? So we... We work very hard up front to make sure that we catch a lot of those traditional issues and nip them in the bud so that when we go to site, we move in that pace, you know. There's no extended um, construction time. There's no abortive work. You know, that's one of the biggest, um, well, I've heard many a time from my uh, father and other people on course overruns and buildings, three quarters done. Yeah, a lot of that can be, it can be, you know, reduced with proper planning. Now, the challenge for me as a designer is that that requires a lot of upfront design work, Mm. right? So you want to get that stuff right before. So it's slightly different. Before you would have had maybe minimal design work and then your your construction would have been the longest period throughout your entire journey, really trying to flip that, really trying to flip that, really put the time, the effort, the planning into that 3D twin, right? Mm -hmm. So that you know, this is what the building is literally going to look like from the ridge 
down to the foundation. This is your building. So you right? measure four times, cut once. Mm-hmm. Exactly, Josiah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly that. So that's the power of building information modeling. And that's only when I'm looking at the, the actual construction aspect of it. Now, when we get into the energy performance, I can literally take that 3D model and run the environmental analyses on it. Right. So now I can tell you what your your daylight factor is with how much sun you're getting into the rooms. Right. I can tell you, okay, this is the energy performance of the building. You're you're pulling this much kilowatts. So that means that our PVs need to be this many over this square footage of roof to be able to offset that amount. Then we could take it even further and say, okay, maybe if we add this much square footage more of solar panels, now we could go into a net metering situation where actually scaling exactly, mm-hmm. right? Even water use, we will we will decide, okay, this is the type of toilet that I'm using. It has a flush rate of this much. The shower heads have a flow rate of this much. We can actually anticipate, calculate, not even anticipate, calculate right? Your projected water usage. So then I can tell you, okay, maybe town and country might only require us to have, you know, a 3,000 gallon, but I suspect because of the number of rooms, the number of fixtures, the type of washing machine that we're hoping to get and the amount of gallons per cycle, that we might actually end up utilizing twice that. So why not invest the, the couple thousand now? into getting an extra storage tank so that if something else happens like this ash situation and what needs to be turned off, we can project, okay, you you could survive, your household can survive for two weeks now without any um, utilities from from government or anybody else, you know? Well, I think we might be heading into that kind of um, walking dead scenario maybe, but... um, I hope not, but it doesn't hurt to be prepared. (laughs) I, I want to switch it a little bit in, t- in terms of the architecture, both on the public, private, uh, as well as obviously residential. Um, how, how do you see the increased sustainability and the, and the better design and um, efficiency? How, how do you think that will affect our, our energy costs going forward? I, I was looking, I think it was in the Barbados Federated Nation News, I was seeing that our energy bill had went from $800 billion, I think it was three, four years ago to 500 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was for, for the past year. So, so how, do you, how do you think in terms of the architectural design and, and um, how, how we go about that? How, how would that impact if, if we have a, because we got that 2030 goal, but having a goal yeah. is nice, but you actually have to have mm-hmm. a pathway to get there. But if, if we actually set a goal to make public sector, private sector, residential homes, new homes definitely got to be built to a certain standard. But how, how would you see that playing a part in the reduction of CO2 emissions and on the foreign exchange side, which yeah. I'm really very much, I, I, I want to save the planet, yeah. but I really care about our economy as well. So yeah. that foreign exchange side in terms of oil imports, how, how do you see that yeah. being impacted? Dramatically, dramatically for, for the better. So if you take the same example of a home, right? If you're thinking of running your home, see that same scenario where we're talking about the utility savings by just introducing some renewable energy to the household, assuming that we're also being energy efficient, right? You would expect to see reduced utility bills, right? If you you expand that nationwide, you could expect to see similar things happening, right? Granted, there's a is a much larger scale of operation, but there are similar projections. So if you think, for example, at LEED, LEED is Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And it's one of the one of the um, accreditations that the government actually lists in their energy policy as being kind of a target for our our a, a good body to align ourselves with as a standard to achieve for energy efficiency right? Mm. Building to lead, people see 20 to 30% less energy automatically, right? Plus more. That's the bare minimum for just their prerequisites, for example. So you're automatically expected to have reductions to around that amount when it comes to energy efficiency, for example. 30% maybe for water, water use, right? But the benchmark percentage for our 2030 pledge is a 70% reduction, 
right? So if you if you think of 70% in millions or billions, I would expect or hope that the dollar amount would equate to something similar along those lines, right? And keep in mind that right now we're aiming for net zero. But beyond that, for 2050, our aim should really be for net zero plus. Mm-hmm where the deficit is even bigger. So you're, you're using a lot less than you're capable of producing. So now you're not just talking about being able to produce sufficient energy to power homes, but you're talking about producing significant energy to be able to power your systems. And you're talking about a full-on grid integration and storage, you know? I wanted to just bring up uh, one thing on, on what you've said there. In, in terms of the water aspect, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think I've heard that we, we're planning on one of those um, desalination plants, I believe, up north. Mm-hmm. But in certain places I've traveled to in Europe, they, they have, by law, persons have to catch water when it does rain mm-hmm. uh, to store it for the mm-hmm. purpose of non-portable uh, things. Like yes. washing, washing cars, I guess, washing down roofs of ash and yes. so on. Why is that not something that we, we have done forthwith already? Mr. Josiah, I don't know why. I, I know that obviously everyone knows that we are asked to have um, water storage, right? At the time of speaking to you, no, I don't, I haven't seen any specific, I don't want to say documentation, no specific guideline for utilizing, for example, rainwater um, for non-potable use, right? Mm-hmm. I, I stand corrected if that's the case, but as I know it now, there isn't any specific guideline. Not that it's not allowed, but I haven't seen a specific guideline of how to integrate rainwater harvesting for non-potable water use. So I think that, especially for Barbados, that is very water scarce. I think the last time I checked, we were about number 15 or something like that, most water-scarce nations in the world. And everybody before us were countries that you probably associate with desert, right? Jeez, mm, I know that you bad. Know? That's the last time well, I saw I don't know where we are. South now. Africa below us? Honestly, there were a lot of ants before us. So Iran, Pakistan, mm. you know, Afghanistan. There were a lot of arid countries um, ahead of us. Right. But I think that, especially because of our regional priority as being water scarce, is a very significant change or formal implementation that we should have. Along with the fact that we have issues with um, storm water management as well. So, exactly. So, in Bermuda, for example, all their roofs are, are harvesting water. Right. And it lends itself to their architectural vernacular, right? Their architectural vernacular, their cultural architecture, the architecture that you'd associate with Bermuda is literally directly impacted by the fact that they have to implement this rainwater harvesting on their roof, you know? So it's something that we should be doing. Not not to say it's not allowed, but like I said, there's no specific guideline at the point of me talking to you that I'm aware of that well, we have. Well, I don't think it's just be a guideline. It needs to be implemented because I don't, I don't from, from the, the chronic um, crisis here from the BWA and from others involved, it would seem to me to be a chronic crisis. So we, we have to approach it in that manner. And uh, we, we can't have any country at all if we don't got water security. Mm-hmm. So, And there's a, lot, there's a lot that we can do, you know. I mean, I think because of our our luck over the last couple of years with hurricanes, and I say that loosely as a luck, um, we have not had the devastation that other countries have had. But in many other countries, people have moved away from your typical timber roofs, right? A lot of people want their concrete roof. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent opportunity, not just to add some thermal mass to your building to help with... Um, solar gain and passive cooling, but also a fantastic opportunity to use your roof as water catchment for rainwater. And with that rainwater, you can simply treat that slightly and be able to use that for, you know, wash, um, flushing your toilets, mm-hmm. right? You can treat it um, so that it's a little softer and 
actually use that to sud, you know, and wash stuff with. Wash off your your cars, irrigation if you have nice plants. And by the way, you should be using native plants and plants that don't require a lot of watering, right? Josiah, my water goes off every other day without fail. And about five minutes up the hill from me. You happen to be St. Joseph, are you? I'm in St. George on the way to St. Joseph. And my friend, about five minutes up in St. Joseph, <laughs> her water is always off. So I imagine me, you know, driving home and seeing people, you know, washing off their cars. And I just want, you know, take a proper shower, you know. So you Small feel it. Life, yeah. yeah, you feel it. You feel it. And, you know, there. I think there's a lot we can do to to take it upon ourselves as homeowners, clients, stakeholders. If you have a project, you need to be engaging your architect to come up with strategies for not just rainwater harvesting, but stormwater management as well. A lot of us like um, to have like nice pavers and a nice like concrete driveway that's painted, you know, nice red or something like that. All of that water, right? It's just rushing off and it could be collected, hmm. you know, it's rushing off and it's not being diverted from our sewage system or um, drainage system. It's been wasted, really. It's being wasted. Yeah. And it's usable water. You might not drink it, but there are other things that you can use that water for. And all of those strategies need to be addressed by the architectural team in those initial phases, because you want to make sure that any synergies between being able to capture rainwater and reuse it elsewhere, mm-hmm. all of the synergies between orient- orienting your building in such a way that you're taking advantage of natural, um, you know, wind and ventilation, all of those synergies and opportunities need to be caught, analyzed, decided upon in those early stages so that your building is performing for you. Right? That's a single best way to improve the energy efficiency of your home, to catch all of those things in those early stages. Rather than chasing your tail. Yeah, definitely. Because exactly. th- all the time I say, when concrete starts to pour, nail starts to get drive. Nobody is going to want to waste money pulling up something or digging up something to do it better. They're going to bite nope. the and, and continue, you know? Yep, yep. So, especially when when most people are on a very stringent budget, indeed. So, definitely understandable. Um, I, I want to touch on on a question in terms of your your architectural career so far. Um, what would you say has been one of your favorite designs or jobs that you you've worked on to date? Ooh, um. I've I've been lucky to, like I said, I I was thrown into the deep end pretty much right out of school. So I've been lucky enough to work on a number of different projects, several award-winning projects. Um, I would say I spent about two years working in St. Kitts on the Park Kayak Project. That was a really fantastic experience. You had people from all over the world working to make that project happen. We were were several years over... um, over schedule by the time I was engaged, but there was a lot of value engineering that went into it, a lot of changes that went into it, but it got done. We had people from Haiti, Dominican Republic, Vietnam, China, everywhere around the world, people were there trying to knock that project out. That was a really great experience. But I would say, and there, there are a couple of local projects here currently near there to my heart. I can't speak too much on them. But I would see my pardon. All confidential at the moment. It's not not confidential, but not quite ready to to be put out there as yet. Um, but I I'd say my my absolute favorite project very likely would have been a uh, secret bay in Dominica. I think my friend has told me about that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was in Saint Kitts working when Hurricane Maria passed through the region. And luckily, we were pretty okay on site. Um, Some of the smaller islands around St. Kitts were totally devastated. And I still thank lucky stars every day that it didn't somehow didn't impact us on on the island of St. Kitts as much as it did um, 
like Saber and stuff like that. But Dominica took it very badly, as most people know. And the the client at the time, he was very he was very adamant that he wanted Secret Bay to kind of lead the way in terms of rebuilding and you know injecting new life into into the area. And there was a particular villa on on the resort that was totally devastated. The only thing left standing was the concrete foundations. And it's very, if you ever get a chance, you should go look at some of the photos. It was a very um, quirky, almost sci-fi concrete foundation that kind of had some interesting Mm -hmm. curves, a central core, and the entire building is cantilevered around that central concrete foundation. But that was the only thing left standing, pretty much. So he wanted to create like a new amenity space, an open air restaurant within that same footprint of the existing concrete slab. So I went in, you know, I did quite a bit of sketches with the company I was working at at the time. Mm-hmm. And we turned that place into a very beautiful, you know, nestled in the jungle type um, Epicurious little display kitchen, very small hmm. number of covers. And, you know, I think recently they've won quite a few awards for the project. They've um, achieved Relay and Chateau status, is, um, is doing very, very well. But the, what I love the most about the project is just the overall willingness to, one, build back better, two, to just have fun with the design do something a little different, but still keep, you know, sustainability and most importantly, the future security of the building in mind. So that if they ever have to experience something like that, there's not that level of devastation and just frustration from the clients and guests are having to have gone through something like that and suffered so much loss. Well, I'm at, I'm at, I was actually on the, on the website looking at it, admiring the uh, the uh, secret bay while you were talking there. Um, it certainly is stunning. Uh, I think I saw something come up about 838 US per night. So I can, can see why they would have, is, would have is hired It's high yeah. end, but um, it's done very well. It's very well. And the, the client has amazing, Mr. Nassif has amazing vision for, for that property. So I was very happy to be involved. And um, well, Dominica deserves every good uh, fortune they can. So that's definitely very lovely to see for sure. Um, I, I want to end um, our, our conversation by asking in, in terms of Barbados and the Caribbean, with regards to energy efficiency and, and sustainability, do you think there's any lobbying or, or, or things that can be tangibly done by your industry to, to help see that move forward? Yeah, I think I think 100%. We're well on our way um, to moving in that direction, whether it's through us as individuals lobbying for it or the government recognizing there needs to be, you know, better standards and legislation in place to kind of chaperone this change right the way through. But I also want to, to point out that I do believe that education on a whole is super important for clients and stakeholders to get on board because a lot of times you'll have clients um, that, you know, by no, no insult to them, they're very driven on their budget, which is fair, right? But there are also some, some trade-offs that they need to be aware of. The operational cost of your building is likely going to exceed some of your initial startup costs, right? So trying to save money by using maybe cheaper materials or, you know, rushing through the design process doesn't necessarily mean that long term you're going to have, you know, any cost savings and you're you're actually doing yourself a disservice. So I think the education in general, whether it's through school, um, public bulletins, Um, building owner education. I think that's super important to help everyone understand how critical it is to start thinking not just, um, you know, in, in like zones or in satellite about, you know, how we get to a better place, but it really needs to be holistic. 
It needs to be an integrative process. It needs to look at things from all different angles, identify synergies, and just make the entire building process, design process, a lot more holistically focused so that we can make sure that we're, you know, optimizing everything as best that we can. Agreed. And and with regards to a home, Mm-hmm. That's for most people, unless you're buying buying a Range Rover or something. That will be their most expensive purchase. So yeah. trying to cut corners wouldn't really exactly. seem to make sense for me when when you're hoping to have it for thirty, forty, or more, yeah. or more years down the line. Exactly. Um, w- w- would there be any anywhere that you would want persons to visit you to see some of your work or to get in touch if they're looking to to yeah. get some design work done? Well, I will say at the moment, I am really excited this year because I finally made the decision to kind of venture out on my own. And I'm slowly, you know, slowly putting myself out there um, on my own. But um, persons could definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn and expect to see a website coming soon. But definitely on LinkedIn, Alyssa-Amor-Gibbons. You will find me posting, sharing my general design rants and thoughts and musings on all things sustainable architecture. And there are some good rants. Um, so you can you. definitely definitely <laughs> check her out on, on LinkedIn uh, and look out for that website coming at some point, hopefully this year. By October this year. Well, you put a timeline on it and you say, well, I smart have. goals, they got, got to be time bound. Can't be yep. just say, we'll have a website. But um, I really want to um, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate you joining us and uh, talking about a very important topic, which will be increasingly so if we were to make that 2030 goal um, real. And beyond that, uh, for people who have young kids or plan to, uh, you want to hope that they're living in a environment where they don't need to be wearing masks per- permanently because of air quality and other stuff. So early want to thank you for joining the, the show thank and you. Um, and you can visit her on LinkedIn and, and look up for a website coming pretty soon. Thank you, Josiah. Thank you very much. It's been very lovely chatting with you. This is a huge passion of mine and I'm sure I could go forever, but I really appreciate you reaching out and, and having me on. So thanks again. Well, if you're going to be putting buildings up, I, w- I would hope is a, a huge passion. For sure, for I sure. Them, I want them falling down on me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much for joining the show. Until next time. Thank you. Right, bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the New Vision Podcast. Of course, you can download any episode from your favorite platform including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many of your other favorite platforms. We really appreciate if you could leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Um, Obviously, this really helps with the algorithm. And we would also appreciate if you have any feedback or commentary and you would like to even ask us a question as well. You can leave that through the Anchor voice messages feature. Alternatively, if you don't have Anchor, you can get in touch with us on Instagram or on Twitter. Until next time.